0: Welcome to the Norfolk Heritage Centre podcast. This week's episode is a talk by local historian Steve Smith about what happened to the 5th Battalion of the Norfolk Regiment, which allegedly disappeared on the 12th of August 1915 during the First World War. Coming. Um, just a quick intro, because some people do ask me, "Who are you?" Um, my name's Steve. I am a local author, and I class myself as a battlefield guide. So I do a lot of stuff over on the Western Front, take groups across there, work with school groups, and then do lots of stuff in the background to to help people, I suppose, in Norfolk with issues, stuff to do with this. Um, this is a kind of put my money where my mouth is talk, because I've written about this twice. I've, I've, there's a blog site as well that you could see, and I'll show you that at the end of this um, where I'm gonna present you what I think is the evidence to show you that what you might know about this battalion is not really quite right and you need, it's, it's about time we start to try and get this message out to show that there is evidence and there was evidence way way before any books or films were made about this particular battalion so we're gonna look at a number of things and you'll also see, for instance, that we've got the question mark about aliens. Uh, we're gonna talk about Sandringham. We're gonna talk about the battalion's initial moves and their training, because that's a big bearing on what happens in the actual battle area. The preparation to Gallipoli, the battle itself, and then the aftermath, and where that goes and where it moves. So, there's five—sorry, four aspects that we can, we're gonna talk about. I speak to people quite a lot about this battalion and every time I talk to new new people about it, the first thing they'll say to me is, are oh, you talking about the Sandringums? Are you talking about the Sandringum Regiment? And I'll say, yes, but, and I'll move on. And I'll talk about that in a little while. We've also got the dispatch that was written by Sir Ian Hamilton, who's the overall commander of the Gallipoli campaign, where he talks about this, nothing more was ever seen or heard of any of them They charged into the forest and were lost to sight and sound, not one of them ever came back. And that's a very famous quote and we'll also look at that. There is the question mark about aliens and then the last bit is the kind of very very I think controversial idea that all these men that disappeared were were executed by the Turks. So we're going to really kind of look into that and delve into it. So the first thing then, aliens. Now I'm not going to dwell on this too much, Um, it comes from the Frederick Reinhardt account who was a New Zealand engineer serving over in Gallipoli, who talks about seeing what he describes a battalion of British soldiers that march down a road, uh, a cloud descends and when the cloud comes back up again they've all disappeared and this gets associated with the, the 5th Battalion Norfolk Regiment, it can be discounted. I'm not going to discount the uh, idea that aliens exist, that there is a, an extraterrestrial element in this, but the reason I discount it from the Norfolks is that Reinhardt's account talks about the 28th of August 1915. What happens to this battalion happens on the 12th of August 1915. So we cannot account them to that because the dates are all wrong. Okay. You can put that name into a Google search engine and you'll find accounts, you'll find people that have written about this and also, if you really want to, you can go onto some really weird and wonderful websites that will try and present lots of evidence to suggest that they were abducted by aliens. But the date is all wrong. So that discounts that one, to my mind anyway. Sandringham, then, like I said to you, people say to me, Oh, you're talking about the Sandringham Regiment, the Sandringham Company, the Sandringham Battalion. Elements of truth within that are that previously, the territorial force which is formed before the war, there was an aspect, an element that came from Sandringham. But if we look at the makeup of the battalion, what you see is that the battalion itself comes from the north of the county, starting from King's Lynn and ending up in Great Yarmouth, so all around the coast line, really, effectively. Inland, Downham, in Fakenham, Cromer, uh, Sheringham, North Walsham, all these elements form the 5th Battalion. You'll see there is only one company that comes from Sandringham, okay, which is E Company. However, when war is declared, after a number of months, the territorial force in itself, the whole force, so we're talking about all the battalions of uh, the territorial force that are formed and become, move into that war footing, have to reform in February of 1915 and have to become the same makeup as a regular battalion, which is a HQ battalion and four companies. Not the companies that we've seen before. So there's a number of companies that you see before. So, 8th of February 1915, they reform, be it becomes a four company battalion. E Company, which is Sandringham, merges with C uh, come and see Company, they become known as the King's Company. So it ceases to exist in February 1915. And this is where I kind of think really there are very few accounts where Sandringham Uh, the Sandringhams are mentioned by people that served with the the battalion itself and I personally think that should be struck off. I don't think they should call them the Sandringhams because it doesn't help when you're looking at this to think that they all came from that particular part of of Norfolk. Mobilisation then, uh, HQ moves to Deerham and then the the Norfolks themselves uh, all generate very soon after war's declared, most of the Norfolks sign a declaration that they're prepared to serve overseas. Every Territorial Force man was asked that. There were very few men that didn't decide to serve. Uh, these are part of the, the 5th Battalion at Sheringham. So there's the station itself. You can just about make it out in the back. There was a bridge at Sheringham Station that doesn't exist anymore, and that's just a railway crossing. But that's, these, these are men from Sheringham once they've moved and, and formed into their war footing on the 17th of August 1914 they moved to Colchester part of where the East Anglian Division comes into play and their first role is to protect various coastal installations around the Essex area this is 5th Norfolk men moving through to Colchester from Dereham Station okay? and that's quite a prominent picture that if you ever go to the the, 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 the sort of West Norfolk um, Railway, you can pretty much sort of work out that that's Deerham Station. It was very hard for a lot of commanders that had, in peacetime, if you think about the territorial force that had their summer camps and had to, as they do today in the Territorial Army, have to do so many hours per weekend or or whatever to, to, to make up this force. When they moved to a war footing, a lot of men found it really hard and a lot of commanders within territorial battalions were not up to the mark. So three months into um, war Lieutenant Colonel Thomas who was the initial commander has to decide that he cannot continue. Now that within the the fifth battalion itself is what they consider a blessing because they've already found out or they feel that he's not fit to command so As Captain Humphrey Mason says, he thinks that the change of command is going to make all the difference in the world. I think there's a little caveat to that, because if you think about some of the bosses you might have had, isn't it sometimes better the devil you know? Because the individual that they get is this gentleman, Horace George Proctor Beecham, 52, takes on the Norfolks, has never commanded an infantry battalion in his life. He was a cavalryman through and through. And so when he takes over command, actually, things begin to go from worse to worse, and even worse. And it's noted in a number of ways. This is Dick Rayner, a local author, um, basically what he says. The manoeuvres became more complex, tiring, and monotonous. The hardening up process began to tell on everyone, not least by all accounts on Colonel Beecham. An unpublished record refers to ill-tempered outbursts directed at officers and men, Battalion and company exercises uh, exposed his shortcomings and did nothing to improve morale and confidence in his ability uh, reached a low ebb with much murmuring in the officer's mess. And there's other accounts of him actually stood on parade with the drill manual because he he couldn't actually make the transition from cavalry to, to infantry. And so lots and lots of murmuring go on within the actual battalion itself and it gets worse and worse so the makeup of these officers they begin to actually look at his shortcomings and within the actual officer corps itself within that battalion things are not going well war carries on though they move to bury st edmunds they're inspected by the king while they're there 20th of may there's a final move to watford where they begin to start to train towards where they're going to be sent, although they're not really, I haven't got an idea where they're going there yet, but there's, at this time, beginning to recognise that it might be Gallipoli. Redesignation of the 21st of May of the actual division itself, so what was initially the, uh, an, the East Anglian Division is given a 54th number, so the 54th East Anglian Division, and they've become part of the 163rd Brigade, which includes their sister battalion, the Norfolks the 4th Norfolks was South Norfolk so the Dis area, Fetford all that way um, south of Norwich as well the 5th Suffolks and the 8th Hampshire's. you're talking if you add the 5th the Norfolks onto that uh, a brigade of 4,000 infantry and then the support element of it which at that time is the, the uh, Medical Corps Army Service Corps and the Artillery the issue with their CO continues. So this is um, Sef- Second Lieutenant Rollo Pelli, who, in his own diary, notes that the mess is seething with having to be led by a colonel in whom they have no confidence. As the day of our going approached, there was increasing concern over our, over the leadership or lack of it, and an attempt was made to get rid of the commanding officer. That's really bad, I think, in a in a an infant, well, any military. Um, organisation, coming from the military myself, I think if you haven't got faith in your commander and the people that are commanding as well have no faith, it's not good. So just 24 hours before they go to Gallipoli or or start to sail to Gallipoli, there is a court of inquiry and within that court of inquiry, their sister battalion, because of a number of officers that have also caused issues, have three sent away. I guess just get posted, and the decision is that Proctor Beecham will be able to retain command, but all orders will be written by his adjutant. So he's not in command of that battalion. The adjutant at the time was a regular officer that served in the First Battalion Norfolk Regiment. So you have a commander that's not really commanding. And there's a reason why I think he might have acted in the way that he did. And this is evidence to show that previously before the war and in wartime, he's actually going through a divorce. He's split up from his wife. And as it says here, and I'll just read it, the divorce in the court um, where the counsel for the petitioner, Sir Horace, was married to the respondent, Florence Levitt, an American lady at Southampton no issue with the marriage but during the South African war petitioner was in command of the Hussars 20th Hussars and on his return um, there are unhappy differences between him and his wife and they're separated and as we see here that he's filed for adultery and his wife or his ex-wife or his his strange wife is having an affair with Captain Harry Francis Darrell of the London Regiment that's dated February 1915 so if you think he's commanding in a battalion of the Norfolks at that time, this must have played on his mind. And the stigma of divorce at that time, I'm sure you'll know, was terrible. Not, we don't necessarily bat an eyelid over it today, but in those days, divorce in itself was actually bad and considered quite, quite sort of wrong to happen. So he's going through that, and I do wonder if that has a bearing on the way that he commanded and, and the fact that he was having to go through that. But with war, it moves on. They eventually get told they're going to Gallipoli. They're issued with their tropical kits. So these are men that are marching through Watford, um, just doing a route march. And eventually, they get sent on the 30th of July to Gallipoli via, um, or on board the HMT Aquitania. It was a luxury liner before the war. So actually, they were quite well treated on there. And some of the men within the battalion even found jobs while they were there, so they became stokers and things like that and earned extra cash just to, to work, work their passage to a degree, though obviously they, they got it for free. So they sailed to Gallipoli, they know that's where they're going. The entire brigade, the 163rd Brigade, go on that ship. And they become this myth and this legend. And this is a, a paper that was, was printed after the war in the 1920s which it shows you a photograph again of them marching out of Watford on their way towards catching the train to, to Liverpool. So, when they enter the war, they initially go to Lemnos. Lemnos was a staging area uh, in Greece for the, the actual campaign itself. So, once they get there, they then disembark and get sent or put onto another ship called the Osmania but less free officers and 157 other ranks. These men are retained because at this time they would be the nucleus for the battalion should there be heavy casualties. And this is something that started pretty much sort of 1914 onward, where the losses were so high in certain battalions that they had to keep this nucleus. So these people remain, but the rest are sent on this little steamer, the Osmania and they get sent to Gallipoli and that's where they move. So Gallipoli in itself then, the battle has been raging since the 25th of April 1915 um, and we're at stalemate. At the beginning of August there has been an attempt to push through the Turkish lines using a number of fresh divisions that Hamilton has been given and they. The command is given to a, a gentleman called General Stockford, who is not up for the task. In fact, he'd retired previously to the war as an elderly guy, and he just cannot command. And everything has really gone horribly wrong. Um, I liken Gallipoli to two great big boxers, allies on one side, the Turks, supported by the Germans in, in certain elements, on the other side, that have just fought themselves to a standstill, where well, they just cannot punch anymore because they just haven't got facilities. Nobody can push back and nobody can advance. But they still try to continue to do this and this is where we come into this 12th of August aspect. So they land on the 10th of August at A Beach in Gallipoli. Uh, That's not the Norfolk's landing but that is actually A Beach. You can just show the chaos that they go into, the fact that this is a very small strip of beach on the peninsula itself. But once that happens, the rest of the division is landed, they get ordered to join up with two other divisions, the 10th Irish and the 53rd Welsh, in the early hours of the 11th of August, and they deploy deployed by battalions, basically, to get to the, to the British line. And they're told that, as a preliminary to further operations, they are going to uh, assault an, an enemy village called Kuchuk annafarta over, where they're going to basically take the village and then consolidate to the eastern side of it um, and all they're going to do is try and clear the area of snipers that's effectively what they get told. The map itself I'll show you a more zoomed-in version of this in, in, a, in a little while but if I just show you that's a beach so that's where they land they come inland to Hill 10 and eventually that's where they're going to end up which is the village itself here okay so they're, they're they're told capture this village. The green line is the Turkish trenches and the red are the British and sort of allied trenches. Um, this whole area is overseen by a number of hills you just make out the contours so the Turks themselves can see everything that we're doing okay they, they can just sit quite happily on these hills and see everything that we're up to so they pretty much know what's going on anyway. The reality is, is what's happened is that um, the previous days from 6th of August onwards has involved uh, the British trying to push forward and the Turks counter-attacking to take back um, uh, territory. The 53rd Welsh Division has fought itself to a standstill and what the uh, overall commander wants this brigade of 4,000 men to do is push past that village to a ridge okay a hill and try and capture that and that's really not going to happen but that's what they want to do and they go in with no divisional support because the actual division itself sailed with no artillery the artillery got sent to France and they spent a short time in France and then eventually ended up in Gallipoli so the only only sort of support they'll get is mainly from naval naval guns not from their actual artillery itself So the Brigade HQ moves inland, and then two people are told to go and get water. If you think that this is the 12th of August and they've landed on the 10th, August, in the height of summer, they haven't had any time to acclimatise, so this is gonna be important. But the difficulty is, is that getting water here, you've gotta think they've gotta bring that in. You can't just get water, they have tried to dig wells and stuff like that, but a lot of it is still carted in as a supply. So, this has a major factor because they can't get enough water to supply their own men, but they do try to do it. So, this individual also wrote a diary, um, Thomas Woods Purdy of D Company, and he's very scathing of Proctor Beecham himself because, as he says, um, when he gets his orders, we move at four o'clock, set about it, and then he added, I'm sorry my orders are so vague but I give them to you as I receive them from the Brigadier. He said the Brigade was to move at 4pm and clear snipers out of the valley, to join up with the 53rd Division and then the 10th on our left and that we should probably attack the Turkish position in the morning. That's basically what they get told. Very little information is given over to the actual commanders themselves. And then the Brigade Commander, General, Capel Bronker, who's also actually his command has also been questioned previously uh, to go into Gallipoli gives the command over to Proctor Beecham who we see here has already the question mark about the way that he commands has already been sort of um, looked into with the Court of Inquiry. Thomas Wood Purdy as he says here none of the officers knew the nature of the operation nor the position of the enemy trenches there was general uh, impression that the object was to move to be a sniper, uh, to be sniper drive for the country was infested with snipers and they'd been annoying us continually for three days. Other commanders from other battalions would tell you that they had no maps. The Hampshire CO wasn't even given any orders, so he was just basically told to go into the trench and get on with it. So there's a lot of confusion in this actual advance and what, what their actual... Uh, main sort of purpose is and so eventually what happens is that the entire brigade forms up at point 28 here which is away from the the actual British line itself so they've got to go from here to the British line and then assault the actual village itself and then move up to here Okay, tepe which is roughly, if you measure it, about five kilometres. Okay, so they're going to have to move this far to get to where they're going. If you just look at the contours, that just shows you the height of this particular ridge. And this is how they move, so this is the actual 5th Battalion. Purdy with his company in the centre, A company on the right, B company on the left, signal section on the left, and then the King's company, commanded by Captain Beck in the rear, and bringing up the rear is um, Colm Seymour with his machine gun section. And at this point in time, um, there's talks of Brunker coming in and actually uh, getting involved with the the battalion himself and he forces the machine gun section to move over, which they shouldn't do because the machine gun section is there for support. And all this ends up in doing, because he makes them move fast, is a lot of men succumb to exhaustion through heat and lack of water. So they actually begin to lose their machine gun section. As they begin to move, as it says with the regimental history, they get told to change direction, half right, which they do, but the Hampshire's don't get told this. A gap forms in the line and this continually begins to increase. So what effectively happens is the Norfolks break away from their own brigade. So here we have the Norfolks here, Hampshire's, Suffolks, and the 4th Battalion Norfolks. And whereas these three battalions are going to go this way, what will happen is the Norfolks will begin to pair off this way. So they're going to be separated from their actual brigade. And this particular thing here now is an account. There's a number of accounts I'm going to give you of some of the things that happened, and these are from some of the men that were there. So, when the advance began, the enemy were perfectly quiet, and the British line was allowed to get well on its way before any movement was made to check it. Then for a blistering fire from the hills on the right, belts forth a terrific cannonade of shrapnel, and from the left came uh, like hail, machine gun and rifle fire, and bullets came from both machine guns and rifles from the enemy front. So they're going be f- they're being fired on from three, three ways, this side and frontally. So they actually be- they just walk into a wall of fire. So this is a friend of mine. I've never been to Gallipoli, I want to go, but this is a friend who took these photographs for me, so it was another battlefield guide, just to show you the area. It hasn't changed a lot from, from what it was a hundred, over 100 years ago, but this is point 28, looking towards the actual ridge line they're going to be assault. So, scrubland, fairly flat country, and then the ridge itself, and they have to move from right to left. As it says here, rough ground is covered with patches of prickly fall bushes with slabs of stone, and dried up watercourses. In the height of summer, all this is very, very dry. And what happens, as did happen previously, is lots of fires start to, to, to be caused by the actual fire itself. So not, not only are they advancing through fire, but they're actually advancing through a natural fire and smoke. And moving from right to left, or west to east, they continue onwards, very flat ground, it's flatter, and continually, if you look at this aspect here, they're actually taking fire from this ridge line as well as the, the, the Turkish defences in front of them and from the other way. Within all of this, there is quite a lot of heroism. And this man stands out as, as uh, I think, a very amazing gentleman. He ring uh, receives a Distinguished Conduct Medal for his action, and this is the actual uh, London Gazette. Um, entry of January 1916 which talks about the fact that while he's on the peninsula he crawls out 200 yards under heavy fire and brought in a wounded officer and he is then shown to load great coolness and presence of mind in assisting to rally his platoon. So Lance Corporal is now commanding uh, a platoon. Sadly the officer that he brings in is this gentleman Marcus Francis Oliphant who is killed. Um, so. Uh, he, he's lost even though the um, Beals tries to bring him in. And, so, William Atkins from the Yarmouth, uh, Great Yarmouth, who was interviewed after um, they, he comes back, talks about the fact that, in his own mind, a company seems to have been the only one to get in with a bayonet as they charged and took a farmhouse fortified with Maxims, German machine gun. The battalion, after a long advance, charged the gully in which the Turks were sheltering, but the enemy ran as they saw them approaching, and so they never got to close quarters, and this gully represented the furthest point of their advance, and here they dug themselves in to resist the counterattack which was delivered from the front and two sides. This is really important because this is a British soldier talking about the counterattacks that go in, and we'll look at some Turkish accounts of this later on. But he's right in what they say, that the furthest point they get to is a sunken road. And they get held there, or most of them get held there, where officers will rally them. And this gentleman talks about what he sees of um, Proctor Beecham. He says, When we're getting up there, I saw some of the officers, Colonel Beecham, Colonels Patrick and Woodwork, and Captain in the Ashland Ward. The Colonel was leading his men, and I heard him shout, Come on, boys, give them the point. Uh, I didn't get as far as those. I was a little distance away from the village, and in the smoke, I saw the four officers with men just in the place of which I was practically in the outskirts. The last words I heard the colonel say well now, boys, we've got the village, let's hold it. And directly afterwards, we got the order to retreat. I could not tell who of them got back and who didn't, and saw no more of these four officers. And I guess they must have got too far and could not get back again. I have not the slightest idea what happened to them. There are accounts of some of the other Norfolk men to say they think that it was a German officer doing a dastardly deed and telling the British to retreat and that's not true because we know what happens is that um, once they get to a point where Private Smith sees uh, he hears um, the CO shout hand them out boys other officers, so Walter, Bar- Walter Barton and Evelyn Beck see that if they continue they're going to lose a lot more men and these are the individuals that tell the men to start to retire and they move back to a certain point as it says here that they uh, wait until dark, until they can get back under cover. And had they stayed, they would almost have died with the rest of the people. There are farm ruins that that my friend, when he went over there, found. So this is roughly, there are two points that he thinks this is probably where they got to. So you can just about make out the brickwork of one farm, and there's another one as well, not far on. And he said to me that what he does believe is this probably is where they got to. Um, It's all well and good me talking about some of this stuff and talking to you about, well, they do this and they go to the right and they go to the left and they carry on forward. But this, for me as well, as a visual visual image, really helped me get my head around this. And this is by a Turkish gentleman who um, does documentaries. And what he did, is he put this on, on Twitter, you've got the Suffolks, the Hampshires, the 5th Norfolks, the 4th Norfolks and as he shows you here, there's the main advance and what happens to the Norfolks is they veer off right this way, so are completely isolated from their own brigade and end up just on the edge of the Turkish battalions that will actually carry out the counter attacks to stop this advance effectively. And there's point 2A on the map, which I showed you before. So I hope that might help you, because if you look then as well, that's where they were supposed to go to as well. That's Tepe, So you can see the ridge line itself. So the aftermath of the battle then is this. A very short entry within the uh, the battalion's war diary that they they say they carry out a frontal attack on Turkish positions. Um, The 5th Norfolks on the right meet strong opposition and suffer the loss of 22 officers and about 350 men. They hold their positions during the night uh, in spite of heavy fire. There is no mention within the war diary of any disappearance. There is no mention of the men going into smoke or disappearing from sight to sound. It's very matter of fact. And they, if you look at the war diary, which is readily available, it's very much business as usual. The next day they just talk about what they get up to in the trenches, about how they consolidate the positions that, that they're in, and they carry on. But, because we have this Sandringham element, the king becomes involved quite quickly. And he writes to Ian Hamilton on the 1st of September 1915 and asks the question, that he's been informed as to the fate of the 5th Battalion Norfolk Regiment that includes my uh, my agent Captain Frank Beck of the Sandringham company. So there is a little bit of chance where they do talk about the company itself. Hamilton receives this and does correspond with the King but does very little else with that information but if you know the history of the Norfolks One of the big stories is to do with this gentleman, Frank Beck, who was the agent of the King, who had commanded the Sandragons prior to them becoming the King's Company and then became the King's Company commander. And we start to see reports within the local papers about these men that have been lost. So, for instance, in early 1916, they talk about Frank Beck and they talk about this lost battalion Um, And they talk about the fact that they've charged into a forest and all this business. If you know the story about Frank Beck, you will have seen in the film that there is this story about a pocket watch that's found. And it's found because a Turkish officer must have taken it off Beck and he's had it on his person all through the war. And then eventually it ends up in a bazaar and it gets returned back to the family. I can never really make out why that was significant within the storyline itself because there are also other reports that you don't see within the book or within the film about things like this. His pocketbook was found, okay? His checkbook was found right after the battle and handed back to the family. Okay, so this is a report from the the Lynn advertiser fairly (coughs) soon after the action itself. So it goes to show that Beck himself, um, they do know roughly what happened to him. Because there are contemporary reports of seeing Beck sat by a tree with his head down and um, at least one man thinks that he's dead. There was no indication that he moves onto the farm where this idea is that they are executed. Okay, So you just see this, this one individual sat there with one by a tree with his head down and I think he's dead by then and then this stuff gets returned to him as well or returned to the family soon after the actual action itself so I can't really marry up why this pocket watch was quite an important aspect of the story the report then from Hamilton doesn't come until the 11th of December 1915 pretty much very soon once the the campaign itself has ended and he talks about the say, that they're on the right of the line, they found themselves for a moment less strongly opposed than the rest of the brigade. Against the yielding forces, of the enemy colonel, Sir H. Beecham, a bold self-confident officer that eagerly pressed forward for the best part of the battalion. fighting grows hotter, the ground became more wooded and broken, and at this stage many men were wounded, grew exhausted with thirst. These found their way back to camp during the night, but the colonel, 16 officers and 250 men still kept pushing on, driving the enemy before them. And as we say, then we have this famous account of nothing more was ever heard of them. And they're lost from sight and sound. They never come back. That's all great, but veterans themselves dispute this fact. And the thing about this is this. When this happens in August, the press leap on it, and the disappearance of the Norfolks begets, starts to get reported quite quickly afterwards. So the Eastern Daily Press, the local newspapers that we still have today start to report this fact. But then it becomes yesterday's chip, chip paper because you have um, things that happen on the Western Front, like the 9th Battalion Norfolk Regiment fire loose in September of 1915 and Edith Cavell is executed by the Germans in October. So all this gets forgotten. But then all of a sudden, the press early on in 1916 kind of think about this and say, let's just look at what we know. What can we find out about the lost battalion and what actually happened to them? So the accounts that I've read to you already about the the action itself are interviews made by men in 1916 onward when they've come back I've been invalided out of the army or recovering from wounds and this one I think is one of the really most important accounts that you have because where he says about the missing officers and men he said I did not see anything of the missing officers after I got lost I heard the colonel call now when we approached the huts I have referred to but I did not see him then I did not hear him again afterwards And during the attack, I did not see anything of Captain Patrick. I did not see any wood into which the officers and the men could have disappeared, and I certainly did not see them charge into the wood. In fact, the Norfolks did not charge, as far as my knowledge goes. And I know absolutely nothing about how the officers and men disappeared. At first, like others, I thought that the officers and the men who were now reported missing had returned to the trenches, but later I found out this was not the case. I inquired a lot about them, but all I could find was that they had disappeared, vanished. We could only come to the conclusion that they had advanced too far and had been captured and had been made prisoners of war. And we knew that some of the wounded, that some of the men had been killed and others had been wounded, so it did not seem at all unlikely that these others had been captured by the, the enemy. And as he says, I heard no news about the Fifth Norfolks charging into wood until I came home. I've got a number of accounts from men that served in the 5th Norfolk that all saying the same sort of thing. I did not see this happen, there was no wood, they did not go into the smoke. It, it's what you're being told is not true. And so this is where I think again if we looked at the contemporary accounts from the time to primary accounts perhaps we would have had the idea of what happened to them a lot earlier. So The EDP, the Lynn Advertiser, a number of um, local papers do their homework and they ascertain, for instance, as this report shows, that at least two officers and 13 men are now prisoners of war with the Turks. Um, They begin to refute the numbers that Hamilton reported. So the actual numbers of men missing drop. So we haven't now got 16 officers and 250 uh, men missing we actually begin to ascertain that a lot of them are accounted for have have already been identified as being killed killed in action, or died of wounds, and that these men are now prisoners of the Turks. Not just that, we have records uh, within the National Archives that show us the returns that came back from the Turkish army to show who was captured and who was now where they were. So it shows you that they're now in this prison camp, for instance. We also know that men are buried in Istanbul. So this this the only um, uh, anomaly in this one is this is Grimes, not Grimes. So Charles William Grimes died of dysentery um, on the 13th of September 1915. So roughly a month he spent um, as a prisoner of war. I'm not going to detract from the fact that prisoners of war camps in Turkey were not good. So there wasn't a lot of care necessarily going on there. Um, although it was in very difficult times but he's buried in Istanbul and I think very tragically which is not reported anywhere at the moment is that there is a 16 year old who is now laid to rest in Istanbul cemetery as well um, who died on the 21st of August 1915 from wounds okay so there's a, a young boy buried in Istanbul and he, I only found out about this lad about two months ago, so even I didn't know about him. So a boy soldier. So this is what we know about the Turkish um, element of what they did. They make no bones about the brutal nature of the fight. And it's known that one of the favorite ways to counterattack with the Turkish uh, army of the time is by Beylik. And as it says here, they speak of British territorials being mown down as they advanced into well laid defensive fire from the 1st fir- of the 36th and the 3rd of the 35th Regiment. The Turkish battalions carry out immediate counterattacks which push the survivors back before two companies of uh, the 3rd, 36th Regiment, who are held in reserve, carry out and what was described as a slashing bayonet pursuit, which reportedly accounted for 15 officers and 250 men. Not far off what Hamilton reports. The commander of that regiment, Major Munib, wrote of an intense struggle all along the front. One bayonet attack is a repulsed, and then a renewed attack defeated before he wrote that they reach a point where the enemy has been defeated. This is all written at the time. Okay, so it's all been there in black and white for a long, long time. This gentleman then is one of the men that was captured. And this is a report that he has to make to the Turkish authorities about what's happened to him. He says that the Turkish fire is so defence and decisive that all the soldiers around him are killed so he loses all, basically all his platoon. He only remains with a sergeant. They move forward 100 yards before the sergeant is hit and he falls he moves forward another 30 yards and then hit himself. And as it says here, he loses too much blood. He can hardly pull himself together. Uh, he can't, I tried to walk. He doesn't know how much further he walked before he falls. And he, when he eventually comes round, he finds out that he's being used as a sandbag by the Turks. Who are starting to shoot over his body. Um, he knows that it might be his end if he carries on moving. But then when he comes to, he finds himself basically in the Turkish trenches and he's being carried back to be given food and water and first aid. Okay. One of a number of accounts from the 5th Norfolks. That's um, Stuart, Fawkes, uh, George Stuart Fawkes, William George Stuart Fawkes, one of the, the gentlemen we're talking about. And we also have this very short account from Sergeant Alfred Allen who also talks about being captured. Um, he talks about being in a group of 20 men. 17 are shot, three get wounded, they remain in the trench, they get captured. A number of accounts from 5th Norfolk men that have to report this after their capture. So it's not just these two men's accounts, are a number of them that we can look at. And this one, um, this is written by this gentleman called Ismail Haki Sinata, who was actually at the time in, this, in the line, had been fighting um, from about the 6th of August onward, was uh, wrote a memoir and sadly the book that that, that has been published is only in Turkish but you can find his account online and one of the things that he talks about here is that two corporals say that they want to capture an English machine gunner so what they do is although he says he's against it he does allow them to do it and as it says in the second paragraph they used a stream bed to circle behind the man and suddenly dropped on him from behind. His rank was captain, meaning captain. All his troops had fled. He was defending his position alone. The man was shaking in fear. Hassan Bey gave him his tobacco pouch to calm him. And even the British captain, uh, even if the British captain knew how to roll a cigarette, his hands were shaking so much or so badly it's impossible. So one of the soldiers rolled him a cigarette as fat as a dolma, which, if, if you know what a dolma is, it's like a vegetable. <laughs> Um, rap, rap that you can you can get in Turkey he, and he begins to smoke. And this is a number of times that he talks about British soldiers being captured. This is not just one account. He talks about stopping men, bayoneting um, British soldiers in a, in a kind of fit of pique that they go into in, when they charge a group of men. And he talks about a number of times about men being moved back um, as prisoners of war. So, On the British side, if you know the story, you will know that this gentleman, Reverend Charles Pierpont Edwards, who won the Military Cross at that time for bringing in wounded men, after the war becomes part of the Grey's Registration Unit, goes back to Gallipoli, and part of his task is to see if he can find out what has happened to the Norfolk Regiment. And so eventually, we have this account where he talks about that they found the fifth norfolk's there were 180 in all 120 norfolk a few Hampshire's, and suffolks with some cheshire regiment we could only identify two privates barnaby and carter their fifth norfolk men they were scattered over an area about one square mile at a distance of 800 miles behind the turkish front line many of them had evidently been killed in a farm as a local Turk who owns the place told us that when he came back he found the farm covered with decomposing bodies of British soldiers which he threw into a small ravine. The whole thing quite bears out of the original theory that they did not get very far on they got mopped up one by one all except those got to the farm fairly famous report what you don 't sometimes see is this he talks about um, what he's witnessed and he's very scathing of the Turks and you'll see as we read it that he talks about desecration of crosses, other distinguishing marks have been destroyed or removed. In some cases the bodies had not been reinterred and it f- talks about the difficulty of finding these graves um, who were known to have been buried. Um, he talks about the bodies only being bones, the uniform not being recognized because of decay. Shoulder titles and regimental crest or badges are the only ways they can identify, but in many cases they can't identify the actual regiment. And this thing here where he talks about the Turks always robbed the dead of everything of value, Um, the Turks certainly took what they felt was was, um, good for them. So even Sonata talks about his men taking British boots because they're better quality than the boots they're issued with. Um, Practice of collecting discs. I dispute that because the discs at the time, not just on this campaign, but on the Western Front, were made of a material that rotted. So actually, whether the Turks took them or not, those identity discs in the heat, whether it be in Gallipoli or the Western Front, rotted down. So it was very difficult to identify men in any theatre of war in the First World War. And so, but he talks about the fact that uh, many of them were sort of unknowns. Hearsay for Pierpoint Edwards is that the book will tell you that um, in the 1920s he tells a friend that he finds that every one of these men has been shot in the back of the head. But it's hearsay. It doesn't come from him and there's no mention in his report of anything to do with that. Go back to Sonata. After the battle on the 13th of August, he's given the job because he's a very, very kind of basic, he's not even really an officer, he's an officer cadet. His CO tells him, you are going to go out into no man's land and clear up the dead. And as he says here, this is talking about his men, where they find uh, a British body stretched out, the ground is hard, can't be dug with the shovels. They say to the soldiers, grab hold, let's take him to the ditch on our left. Everyone cringes, saying, I cannot hold him, I am afraid. This is not the place to be shouted, because he's doing this in no man's land. Upon my insistence, several soldiers grab the body by the trouser legs and began to drag it, we took it to the ditch, shovelled some earth on top of it, so much for a human body, okay? Off we go, a few more steps later, another, then another. And so basically, when you talk about battlefield casualties, whether it's a farmer or like this gentleman, they haven't got the luxury of time, so they just end up having to do what they can for these individuals in burial. Um, He goes on then to talk about this. This It's what I like about this gentleman, because it's a really interesting thing to find out what the Turks thought about us. Well, they talk about, they find a Turkish soldier next to British soldiers. He's been, for days he's been lying in brotherhood with the British dead and had no quarrel with them. Hayala, so it's the thing called life that brings humans to fight. When they are dead, they all lie quietly, calmly, without attacking each other. If only they could get along so well in health. I think that's a really tragic observation about war in any shape or form, really, that the dead really just are the dead, and they will lie there with the people they've just been trying to kill. It makes me think of Wilfred Owen as well, the famous, one of the famous poems in The Strange Meeting, where he talks about, I am the enemy, you killed my friend. That's one of the lines that he talks about in his poem. But, going back to us, 1920, we have... The blackburn times and this comes from the report from pierpont edwards what they also find out is this the battalions have advanced in perfect order and to all appearances have been caught by machine gun fire one man had taken cover behind a stone and a large pile of empty cases found around his skeleton showed that he defended himself to the last just behind, behind the norfolk front line mr edwards came across the remains of about 50 men who had fallen in grim hand-to-hand struggle touching each other with the bodies of Britons and Turks the heads of the latter facing seawards and those of the attackers towards the adversary's lines so that again is an account that in the 1920s early 20s is reported that um, also adds on to what Pierpont Edwards has, has mentioned in his report and he's mentioning the fact that these 50 men have been found in this position not dumped as, as he's reports in his official um, sort of um, communique. And so what I think I want to get from this and what I'm trying to do with, with what I'm working on is this. We know that these men came from all over the north of the county, inland in places like Downham Market and Deering. I first started writing about the Norfolk's because of this lad, Cecil Bullimore, who came from my village in Worsted. Um, Cecil was 19, no known grave. As is the same with these gentlemen, Thomas Harbage from Kings Lynn, Bertie Green from Barnum Broom. No graves. All commemorated in the Hellers Memorial now, where most of the Norfolks are, less a few men that can be identified. And what we know is this, this is the Gallipoli Association website, and I totally and utterly agree with this. Many wounded, disorientated and exhausted men returned back to the British lines over the next few days. And that's definitely reported in the war diaries. Surviving uh, the war as prisoners were at least two officers and 31 other ranks. So from the entire brigade, 33 officers and men become prisoners of the Turks. Which adds to the surviving numbers. So the final casualty figure for the day, the 12th of August, is 15 officers and 141 men. And as they end is this of which only Captain Beck and 16 men were recruited from Sandringham. Okay? And as it says, this is the fact, not the myth. So this is where we need to start to bring into the fact it's not just about Sandringham. This is about a great big swathe of Norfolk. Official things are this. They go to war with 30 officers and 1,000 other ranks. So not an entire battalion disappears. And we know that the war diary effectively reports 22 officers, 350 men. The actual official Wargrave Commission tally from the 12th to the 31st of August is 166 men. If you've got relatives in the that served in the 5th Norfolk, or you're interested to know about these men, you will often see that the, the deaths are reported as things like the 21st of August or the 28th of August. That's not through enemy action, that's through the time where the official report of the death comes in. So it's basically, not they all die on the 12th of August, effectively, but you will see dates between the 21st and the 28th of August. Okay? So, what I'm doing at the moment, I'm trying to get this out. This is the second time I've done this talk. Um, And what I'm looking at doing potentially in the future is perhaps writing a book about this. But I know there are others out there that are doing that at the moment. There's one lady I know that's writing a book about the Norfolks, and I've helped her along the way with research into that. Um, I have two books anyway. Uh, the first one is about my village, Worcester, and, and the, the, the other village of Westwick, and it talks about the Men and the War Memorial. You can read about the fifth Norfolks in that book. They're also mentioned in my sort of most up-to-date book, which is about Norfolk and the Great War. And... I know Sarah's obviously mentioned about the podcast, but I have a blog site, and there are, there's a five-part blog on that site about everything that I've talked to you tonight, okay? So you can go back and actually revisit that, and I actually present a lot more evidence than perhaps I can do in an hour's talk. So I would say thank you for your time, and do you have any questions? Steve? Yes. These discs you talk about that rock. Yeah. What do you mean by disc? Every soldier carries an identity disc, okay, mm-hmm. and what they tended to do was there were two discs. One would stay with the body and one would be taken away by a grave registration unit or somebody within perhaps the regiment themselves, like an officer. Um, these discs at the time were made of a material that actually looked, if you rip them apart, they like felt, so if they're felt, they're going to rot. And that's what happened with a lot of the identity discs within the First World War. Um, nowadays, and actually in, in the Second World War, that was rectified by issuing metal discs. Um, the Germans in the First World War had metal discs. So actually, when you find casualties, because you still find lots of men out on the Western Front, certainly, like the, the, what they call the, the loss coming in from the cold, if you find a German soldier, you can probably identify them. If you find a British soldier, not much chance, unless you can find something on them that will identify them through personal effects, like a you know, some like of some of the stuff that they might have carried with them. That's made out of metal, basically. So it's just a, a way of identifying the casualty. Seems crazy. Yeah, <laughs> it's crazy. The very <laughs> purpose it's for, and they yeah, don't, and they filling. yeah, and they sad, isn't it? Well they didn't realise until much later on. Sadly. Any other questions? Okay, thank you very much, sir. <laughs>